Hello, Jesse Perryman here, Flag Hunters. I am here with my good friend, longtime great friend, Rich Yakota. Rich, you and I have known each other for quite a long time. It's it's been I don't know, thirty years. How long we amazing journey, right? I'm glad we're reconnected now. One hundred percent, Rich. What are you doing now? What are you doing these days? Right now, I'm at uh, the Bridges Golf Club in San Ramon. I'm doing instruction full time. Uh, it's a great spot. I'm about fifty percent junior golf. Tons of golfers out here. I mean, we can't. We're turning people away left and right just because the community is so golf crazy. So I couldn't. I couldn't have landed in a better spot. Do you think so, that it, is it? Has it been? Um, basically reignited because of COVID or has it always been that way? Uh, even more so after COVID, uh, when we reopened, all my old students came back as long and as well as keeping the regulars on the calendar. So it's for the first time in my life, it's, I feel terrible, but it's like, we can't even, we can't even find spots for all the people calling in, but that's just, uh, I think that's the state of the game right now, especially around here. Well, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. We want a lot of people to play our sport and more importantly, get better. So you're teaching in San Ramon and uh, you were for how many years USF's men's golf coach? Uh, nine years. Nine years. Head coach, correct? Six years head coach. Six years head coach, three as an assistant. Yeah. So what, what was that experience like uh, working with with young division one collegiate players for you. Oh yeah. It was amazing. Um, you know, before I got there, I figured, you know, people had suggested, you know, Hey, you should check out collegiate coaching. And I was like, eh, I would love that. But the, the road to get there, it just seemed like such a long road. Um, I caught a couple breaks. I met the former coach who was going to retire uh, he knew me from when I was young, so there was a lot of trust there, and he brought me in as an assistant. And so I kind of fast-tracked to that that spot, and I pretty much knew that, you know, two, three, four years it would take to get to the head coaching position. And I couldn't have seen that happening without the connection, so super grateful. Um, and, uh, you know... In those nine years, it felt like 20 years because I was just so immersed in it and we were traveling all over the place and you got new faces every year and uh, a lot of amazing relationships. I mean, it, it was, it's family. You know, I still get a lot of calls and texts and I follow the old players and it's just a, like one big, huge family. So um, that that's an experience I'm super grateful for. How now? What part of that do you take uh, into your instruction working with young people? You said fifty percent of your students are juniors. Do you, do you use that experience as being a collegiate coach? I use that experience to to understand what these juniors, you know, and not all these juniors are going to be collegiate golfers. Maybe half of them have dreams of it, right? Sure. And maybe half of them are kind of just dabbling and and they just want to enjoy the sport. And at this point in my life, I, I don't, I don't have any less motivation to help 
the the guy that's shooting 90 and help him break 80, you know, whether, you know, or if he's a, a division one prospect, maybe two or three division one prospective juniors that um, are doing all those things that you and I did to try to get ready for, you know, recruitment and competing at a high level and playing top level amateur golf. So I kind of have a big mix of, of uh, a big mix of positions in terms of like their skill set, which is different than coaching at a division one level, right? You know, at the division one level, you're not really developing their games as much as people would think, you know, we can get into that more, but um, being a collegiate coach does help me uh, prepare them and help them understand what to expect. You know, what are coaches looking for? What's collegiate life going to be like? Are you good enough? And what are the things you have to do to, to be good enough? And so I've got some kids right in the middle of that right now as we speak. And it's pretty exciting to have just a hand in, in, um, in their path. When, when you have a, a young person, uh, a young man or a young lady who's shown some promise in potentially making uh, a division one program, what are some of the things that you tell them to, to be prepared in part of this process? What are some of the things that you say to prepare their golf games and prepare just playing golf at a high level combined with college life? Well, a lot of the time, you know, recruitment happens so early that a lot of the times as they're trying to get in a position to be recruited, they're only 15 years old, 14, 15, Mm -hmm. maybe 16 years old. At that point, then it becomes kind of business-like, which I try to guide them through. But um, first and foremost, as you know, is the quality of their golf. Their games have to shine. And it's not like when you and I were 16 years old, every tournament round you play, it gets registered in the national database. (laughs) And uh, all the stats are there to see. So if you're a collegiate coach looking for, you know, players that can improve your roster, you kind of know exactly what these kids have shot for the last two years and exactly where they've been and who they played against. So then, then a lot of our work becomes more about those intangibles. How hard is this kid going to work? How, how organized are they? How, how much desire do they have on their own intrinsically without someone looking over their shoulder? Right. Cause that's what changes when you go to college that passion for the game, that love of the game and, and the character that they present, you know, those become the important things. We already know how well they score and how many tournaments they've won. So what separates these kids becomes kind of the interesting focus that, that we, uh, we talk a lot about. Yeah. You and I have had some great conversations about that. Some of the intangibles, what, what would some of the intangibles be that you would want to to help a young person or anybody who wants to get better help them explore? I think the first the first thing that occurs to me is um, is having a balance in their lives. In other words, you know, I think we have this idea that the uh, the future PGA Tour player is 100% golf only where every shot 
you know, is being measured and observed and critiqued and analyzed. And uh, I think that's a little bit of a, an illusion. Um, and so when I talk about balance with these kids, it's like, hey, do you have some other hobbies? Do you play some other sports? What is what is what other things do you do that helps you develop as a human being? Mm-hmm. That, uh, like you said earlier before our podcast, you know, it's there are so many parallels that we we draw from in life, music, uh, other sports, um, helping other people, you know, and that goes that all that stuff goes into the development of a person that you don't. In hindsight, you know, we we're I was just reading an article last night about a couple of the greats like Tom Brady, Joe Montana, Michael Jordan. A perfect example is like a Tom Brady. He was a three sport athlete when he was in high school. And by the time he got to, by the time he got to, uh, where did he play? Michigan. He was the seventh quarterback on their roster. Yep. He was the seventh ranked quarterback on their roster. So what made Brady different? That's where it gets interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And the 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 easy story to tell was would be that he was born to be number one, and that he was a standout the entire way. Well, that just wasn't really the case. Same with Joe Montana; mm-hmm. he thought he was going to play basketball. Yep. Jordan was a, a very good baseball player too. Yep. Nicholas, right? He he thought he might play football. Yep. In fact, he got an offer at Ohio State, I think. Yeah. So when you dig a little deeper, it becomes fascinating and it makes you realize that these people were developing all kinds of dimensions, not just in sports, but who knows, you know, dig a little deeper and you hear, you know, you learn more about how they were raised, how they were parented, how they were coached. Did they have a childhood? You know, did they have some free time to explore, be creative um, and learn to have, a real developed passion for what they eventually became great at. Yeah. I I think those things, unfortunately, or a lot of them are getting thrown by the wayside these days, especially young people I see. And you and I have talked about this before where young people are just so centralized around the game of golf. Right. um, It's just, they're they're That's all they're doing. It's really tricky because it's it's tough. You see your, you know, literally right in my town, you, you see your, if you're the fourth best player in San Ramon, you're pretty good. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just a hot spot for junior golf for one thing, mm-hmm. you know, but at the same time, you know, you look next door and if this kid's practicing every single day for five hours, chipping and putting, beating balls, getting on a launch monitor, it's tough to say, hey, maybe I need to hang out with my friends and uh, play a little basketball with them this afternoon instead of grinding over the, you know, it's a balance. It all comes down to balance. Yeah. I would say that in a perfect world, if you had a young person that had that sort of intense passion that you would just provide an environment for, for uh, him or her just to explore. Right. And uh, you know, if they choose, if, if it's in their blood and that's what they want to do and they're, you know, unconditionally passionate. Right. They're, they're, they're going to be gravitating towards it for years and years and years. So it's almost inevitable. Yeah. You played some other sports, right, Jesse, growing up? I did. Yeah. I played baseball. Well, we're, played, I mean, played you played football. some baseball. What, mm-hmm. You know, you're probably good at a bunch of things, right? 
And if you think back, it probably had a lot to do with your ability to, to pick up the game of golf and develop dimensions of yourself. Sure. Uh, that, that are hard to, they're hard to see later on, but people, yeah. you know, people who play golf with you today probably figure, oh, this is all this guy did. He hit millions of balls, you know, but there's always more to that story. One yeah. thing that, uh, with, with parents, you know, uh, once in a while, a parent will ask me exactly that question. You know, what, what does my kid need to do to become, uh, an elite junior golfer, you know, a possible professional golfer. And, uh, you know, the, the conversation steers back towards our great, the greatest of our generation, which is Tiger Woods. And I think there's still so much that's misunderstood about Tiger Woods. His dad was the master of reverse psychology. He, he almost withheld the game from Tiger yep. so that he was just dying to play it. He's yep. just like, hey, Tiger, you're not ready. You don't hit it solid yet, <laughs> you know? Right. And so Tiger was just like spying on his dad, hitting balls in the basement. He was observing. He was imitating. He was practicing when no one was around and no one was looking. And um, the other the other thing that I share with some of these parents is that according to the biography of the Woods family, um, his dad never made him practice, not once. And that was intentional. He never said, you have to go practice. He created an environment where Tiger just loved and, and couldn't resist practicing. He couldn't, he couldn't wait to get out there. He couldn't wait to, to play golf with his dad. And, uh, I think that's a much better approach. And it's something I try to share with a lot of families. Sure. I, I, th I agree with you, Rich, on that. Create an environment where they would naturally gravitate toward it. And the level, the level that they want to get better is obviously going to determine the level of their, their, their passion and their pursuit. And, and if they don't want to, let's say you leave them alone for a few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and if they don't want to, well, that tells you something too. There's nothing wrong with that. Sure. You know, and, and if and if someone wants to play just for fun and have it be one of their three sports, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think families are always looking for that, you know, hey, can I get a four-year scholarship? Right. We have, you know, and I talk to a lot of families that don't even consider Division Two, Division Three, NAIA or junior college golf because they, they just rule it out, unfortunately. Right. But those might be the perfect pathways for their children to develop just in and your have opinion, great experiences. Yeah. In, in your opinion, Rich, uh, why would parents rule out their child? Not because it, it doesn't sound like a professional track and it doesn't sound like a prestigious track. You know, it's sort of like, a lot of families will rule out certain colleges, you know, for professional reasons or for reputation or whatever. And that's understandable. But, you know, I, there was a uh, young lady that um, I mentored a little bit here that was, was definitely eligible for a division one roster spot. And she ended up going to a division three spot and playing contending for a national championship twice in her first two years down there at a small private school that was very, very strong academically. And so that's an example of a great fit where she, she might've squeezed into a D one program somewhere and played maybe a third of the tournaments and maybe gotten beat up a little bit, but 
Instead, she went to a D3 school, contended right away for a national championship, and is also uh, on track for a pre-med career. So, you know, you have to look at the whole big picture um, and make sure you're not forcing your own wishes and dreams on your children, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I think we want the best for our children, and and there certainly is a part of us that wants to live vicariously through our children. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, unfortunately, or however you want to look at it. My son doesn't play golf, but he likes golf. He respects golf. You know, and if I ever if I say, "Hey, you want to hit some balls or something?" He's always, "Yeah, I'm down." You know, so the fact that he doesn't play golf may sound like, "Oh, he must resent it." His dad's a golfer, right? His dad's a coach. I bet you there was a bunch of pressure there, but no, I just said, Hey, you know what? You do what you want to do. If you want to play golf, Hey, we'll set you up. Yeah. But, uh, he, he's just a different human being and has different interests. And I, I love that about when, when you were coaching, I'm curious to what, what, what were some of the, did you talk about some of the intangibles? Did you talk about mindset? Did you talk about course management, self-management? Uh, things like that with your kids? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, it, overall, it's as a collegiate coach, and I think a lot of collegiate coaches would agree with me, there's so much going on at such a fast pace that you can't really develop their games that much. You can support them. You might be able to teach them how to practice smart, how to time manage better, how to get their homework done, you know, sure. so that they're not thinking about their term paper when they're on the first tee. Right. So, you know, people ask me a lot, well, what was that like? Um, I didn't develop anybody's game. Um, I tried to give them as much confidence as I could. And I was, you know, one thing I say to people is that I'll, I'll never lie to you as a coach. Um, but I believe that you're talented. If you're here, you're talented. If you're at a division one level, you're, you're an amazing talent already. Even if you're 700th in the nation, right? And you, you can barely crack a top 20. The talent level is amazing, and it's only getting better. You know, it's, there's three times as many good players now as just when you and I were at the same age, right? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the coaching was about keeping things light, keeping things organized, feeding them, <laughs> feeding them while they were playing, cracking a joke when things were getting a little tense, you know, Sure, I gave them information, a lot of on-course coaching, um, a lot of strategic stuff, maybe uh, course management things, but it's it's more about mentoring, I think, than developing people's games. That that uh, that passion to improve just has to be there already because you can't you can't create that for somebody in that moment. By the time they get to college, we're, we're hitting the ground running. Sure. Now, if you have a a young person now that shows up and wants to take lessons from you, how, how do you get them started? Say they've, they've got a little bit of a natural ability, just a hypothetical here. They got a little bit, they got some good hand eye and uh, they've got the golf bug. Yeah. How how do you start them off uh, to help them develop a, a consistent pattern? Give me an example. Well, uh, I got a young, a young junior golfer. He's about 10 years old and pretty good athlete hits it solid. 
um, short game. You know, I tell them every, pretty much everyone's going to hit it good by the time they're 16. You know, if, if you're, you know, you're looking to, to be a, to make a, to make your mark competitively, you, you're not going to look around. It's unlikely you're going to look around at these high level tournaments and say, I just hit it way better than everyone here. That's probably not going to be the case. What's going to be the case is, hey, I manage my game well. I have a great attitude. I'm consistent in my mindset and my short game shines. And that's that's probably the what separates the middle of the road guy with, from the guy that, that can win and has a chance to do some damage professionally, et cetera. So um, playing a lot of games around the greens with these kids, um, and that's where they can get creative. I'm not really a method guy. I try to borrow from a lot of, you know, whether it's Seve or Watson or Spieth, you know, try to show them different shots. Uh, never, you know, try to have a game where they can't hit the same shot twice. Instead of hitting a hundred chip shots to the same target, we're going to move around, get creative, step on your golf ball, dig it out of a hole, hit a flop when you don't need to hit a runner, bump it, you know, bump it three times and get onto the green, get creative. Um, I think that's, I mean, how did Seve land the game with a three iron? That's insane. And that was probably intentional from his family. Right. I mean, his, his brother was a golf pro, right. Or a golf, his brother was a, a competitive golfer, his older brother. Yeah. And it's not like they didn't have golf clubs for Seve. <laughs> even though they were pretty poor. Right. I'm yeah. sure they could have found a sand wedge and a putter, right? But they're like, hey, Seve, I dare you to beat me with a three iron. And he figured it out, right? One of the most, <laughs> one of the most creative minds of all time. <gasps> Hang on one second. One of the great minds, one of the great, just, just a wizard. Uh, I think that's... That, that's you know, I want to expand on that for a second. As, as far as practicing and practicing the short game, I think that that uh, I want to definitely agree. I think a lot of people, it would be so much better, even if they practiced for 10 to 15 minutes uh, here and there with different lies, different shots, different everything. And, yeah. um, and, and, and Dr. Rattel's latest book, he suggests uh, make it, the name of the book is make your your next shot your best shot as far as short game practice. Literally chipping with one ball and trying to put it in. Yeah, yeah. Let's rehearse golf, right? Yeah, right. Let's not rehearse practice. Let's rehearse golf at least once in a while, right? Yeah. You know, and and you understand that you have to practice the competitive mindset or the real golf course experience. So really good players will will do that. They'll they'll go through their routine. They'll use their imagination to, to put themselves in imaginary pressure situations that feel, start to feel like real golf, you know? And I think kids, if, if they're, if they're given enough space, they're naturally going to, you know, someone who's very competitive is going to naturally use their imagination and, and pretend like that four footers for the, you know, to get their PGA tour card or to win their first PGA tournament or to, you know, to get into a playoff in the first collegiate event, they're naturally going to want to 
to uh, to practice that moment. So uh, I remember doing that, you know. And kind of side note, I was I was talking to to some kids today, or maybe yesterday, and I said, "Hey, do you do you watch golf?" Nah. Well, maybe they don't have time. I don't know, but mm-hmm. it's amazing how many good golfers don't watch golf. Mm-hmm. And I think you're missing out a lot on a lot. Mm-hmm. Little things that you pick up from good players, the way they carry themselves, right? The way they react to a mistake, the way they react to a 40 foot birdie putt. You know, it's, there's so much that's happening there that we can study that we otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to be, you know, be around a Jordan Spieth or a, a Colin Morikawa. Right. Mm-hmm. Um it's, I think it's hard to do something at a high level if you don't study it, if you don't study the best players. So I always say, you know, f- f- pick a couple of favorite players and try to learn everything you can about what they do. You know, what's their demeanor on the golf course? What's their body language like? You know, how do they react to situations out there? Watch them practice if you can go see them live. So um, I know things are kids these days are overly scheduled right yeah and it's and it's hard to find free time to do that with all the homework and whatever but you're missing out you're missing out if you don't study the greats right yeah i would agree with that thankfully uh we've got youtube now I yeah mean, youtube when when you and i were growing up would have been a would have been a a, a revelation and right. now, now these kids can literally look up uh, uh, Tiger in 2000 or, or Ben Hogan or Jack Nicholas or Bobby Jones or whoever it is, uh-huh. uh, you know, Dustin Johnson, Morikawa today, Rory, uh, Patrick Cantley, and all these great players. But I think that y- you touched on something that I wanted to talk about and 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 having an impressionable young person look at these greats and and try to observe from afar and then uh, applying that actually to their own games, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, being the witness and the observer to their own games. And, um, you know, imitation is, is a great thing. Watching these great players, imitating them. And and if there's ever a moment where a young person can ask a Jordan Spieth, Hey, how did you react to three putting the ninth hole at Augusta or something like that? You know, what was your mindset? Yep. And, uh, and, and if you, and if you observe and study enough, you could probably pretty much figure it out, but I think it's a brilliant idea. I, mean, I remember I was, being down at the, uh, AT&T when I was probably, I don't know, 12 years old. And John Cook was one of the hottest players in the world at the time. And I was watching him on the range and I was just so mesmerized by his iron ball striking. Right. And, and I was just, I, I think he could feel that. Cause he, he actually walked over to me and he's like, Hey, what are you looking at? You know, uh, what are you noticing? And I said, well, I'm just amazed at how that divot comes right after the golf ball every time. And it's like, well, it's not that hard. It's just cause you, you know, at the top of your golf swing, you bump left and the bottom of your swing is past the ball. I'm like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he had an answer for it right away. Right. Sure. Tossed me his golf ball. Four days later, he wins the golf tournament and he becomes my favorite golfer for, for years. Sure. actually had a chance to play a practice round with them at that open. Mm-hmm. And I told him about that. He was, <laughs> he didn't remember me, of course, you know, cause he, see, he meets people every day, but I, he, he thought it was pretty cool that, 
that uh, just that moment of just banging balls inspired some kid, right? Sure. And uh, 20 years later, we play together, you know, at the same tournament. Let's hit the rewind button on that note. Um, 1996. And I want to uh, start this, this part of it by you and I playing together and me playing really good golf for me at the time. And somehow always losing to you on the last hole. You know, <laughs> it was, I, that was by design, Jesse. I planned it that way. No, no matter what. <laughs> no matter what. If I was four under, you somehow managed to be five under. If I was one over and then you somehow managed to quit me. I don't know. Whatever it was. I don't know. We never played match play. It was always stroke play. But um, 1996, you qualified for the U.S. Open at Oakland Hills. Yeah. Where, where did you do the, 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 did you do the local? You did the local, right? The local and sectional. Where'd you do I the did local? the local at Pasatiempo, my home course. Yep. And then the sectional was 36 at Lake Merced country club. So I got through on two courses that were, were pretty close to home, you know? And so, you know, that was really almost a culmination of so many things. Like it just years of toiling on the mini tours, right? Asia, Canada. Um, I became a decent player on the on that level. Mm -hmm. um, and in the back, the tough thing was in the back of my mind. I when I was at the Open in '96, I I hated this thought, but I also believed that it was the only one I was going to play. And I've always had a knack for those types of predictions. I didn't want to believe it, but mm -hmm. it, it occurred to me that it, it felt like that was the only one I was going to play. So it was a really special, uh, you know, achievement for all the, the hard work I had put in. And I was, I was always an overachiever. I was an undersized, scrappy, untrained golfer, never had a golf lesson. Um, but I worked hard to get there. And so this is something I was really proud of able to make the cut and it spurred me on to a few good years of, of competitive golf, but was able to stay afloat for a little while and getting beat up, you know, 95% of my career was just getting beat up, but it taught me a lot. Sure. And it, and it helps me, uh, helps me understand uh, and communicate what, what everyone's go, what everyone goes through, whether you're a, a hundred shooter on the first tee of a, of a corporate scramble, I can relate to that guy. I can relate to that moment. I can help him through that. Sure. Because I've been there. Almost everything that you can think of in golf, I've been there. <laughs> and it's mostly struggle, as you know. The golf is if if you don't if you don't embrace the struggle of golf, uh you better pick a different game because it's 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 mostly struggle. <laughs> yeah, here here to that. Um yeah. and and before we go down that road, which is a great road, I do want to talk about that open. Because that's pretty cool. Um, so you made so you made the Oak at Oak, Oakland Hills, 1996. And Tom, did Lehman win that? Lehman won that. Yeah. Davis Love three putted on the last hole. I was able to see that live uh, after I finished my fourth round. And um, it was a golf course. It, it rained uh, like three inches right before the tournament. Really? Bunkers were filled with water. And so this was a golf course that if you had to design a golf course that was 
the opposite of what would suit me, that would be it. (laughs) So it was, it was going to be, it was going to be a struggle. You know, I flew the ball about 245 at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's where the ball ended up. Right. It it was plugging. (laughs) And then you got these crown Donald Ross greens and I'm hitting four irons into those things, trying to hold those greens. And, um, but I managed to put together one good round. Well, you made the cut and let's talk about that third round. And who did you play with in that third round? Uh, my good, my best round was the second round. It was the second round. Okay. The second so, round. So once, once I made the cut, I was like, Oh my God, I'm exhausted. I'm done. <laughs> it feels like it's, it's been such a journey. To, I mean, it's so much different than, you know, your veteran tour pro who's like, Hey, yeah, it's a major, but it's another week of my life. Right. And I'll be back next year. Sure. For me, I was just like exhausted. And uh, my caddy was my caddy was mentally breaking down at the time because he was a young caddy. He had never played a caddy to tour event. He was so into it. And when I didn't pull it together in the third round, he was he was starting to panic. And I actually had to talk him down and do a little intervention with him because he was starting to freak out. I'm like, hey, it's OK. It's all right. I'm doing my best. It's cool. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so I, it was just I was just cruising to the finish line at that point, but. But you shot notably. You shot sixty-seven in the second round. Yes, correct. So that's mm-hmm. three, under, three under. Was right. that low? Was that low for the, for uh, no. Uh, Greg Norman shot a sixty-five, set the course record that day. Um, Layman shot sixty-six, which tied the course record. Um, and I was one higher. I actually had a four-footer on eighteen, and I lagged it because it was so fast. Um. Uh-huh. I carved a forward into the last hole, <laughs> uh, back right pin, par four. You know, everyone else, the big, the big hitters are hitting seven iron, six iron in there, and I carved a forward in there. And I'm coming straight down the hill, and I told myself if I three putt here and miss the cut by one, I will never forgive myself. Uh, so I lagged that thing down there, wobbled down there, and ended up on the lip, uh, but tapped that in for sixty-seven. That's- yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. And then you played with Duvall in the third round, right, David Duvall? Yeah, he was just cruising. Yeah. He was he was so good. That was a moment where he hadn't won yet. Right. He had something like eight second-place finishes. And I'm looking at this guy going, if this guy's not going to be number one in the world, I'm going to quit because right. he is so – he's like Superman, right? Yeah. And then he went on to win like six tournaments in the next 12 months, right. got to number one. You know, and the rest was history, but uh, he was just ho-hum, just cruising along, playing with some unknown hack, right? <laughs> Probably resented that, but, you know. And and who'd you play with in the final round? Uh, Kurt Byram, nice guy. Yeah, he's really solid guy. So, uh, you know, I, I find it fascinating, anybody who's played in that tournament especially, I mean, what an examination, what a nasty examination. I mean, I can, I can only imagine, I think I played Pebble uh, a couple of times before a couple of U S opens and I have played Olympic before a U.S. open. And it's just, you have no idea how hard those things, how hard those golf courses are. It's the, it's wherever the U S open is. I'm going to echo exactly what Tom Lehman said. Wherever a U.S. Open is, is the toughest course they play all year. Yeah. Yeah. 
hundred percent. I love, I love how they had the, what I, I think did Jordan go out and try to break, uh, break a uh, hundred on an open course after the open. He was an eight handicap at the time. Yeah. It was something like that. Right. Yeah. It just goes to show how, well, I think a huge part of it is being on TV. Of course that makes it twice as hard, but, uh, just the rough and the firm greens and things like that. What an experience. Yeah. Do you, what, you know, what about that experience do you use or do you, do you draw back on, on those days, particularly shooting 67 in the second round? Do you, do you draw back from that experience? Do you impart any wisdom that you learned that week to on the young people these days? Well, for myself, you know, I was 28 years old and and one thing became really clear to me because f- by the time I was 28, I had been playing internationally and on the mini tours for about, oh, six years. Mm-hmm. And I met a lot of good players, people that you know, people that have eventually got to the tour, Scott McCarran, Jeff Brejo, um, some guys down south that are phenomenal, that are unknown. Uh, Jeff Wilson, um, um, amazing golfers, right? And what I realized after that event is that, okay, I played really well. It wasn't like I was training 50-footers. It was a solid round of golf. And in hindsight, what I figured out was that on a really good day, I could play with anybody in the world. It's not like It's not like there's a whole different species of golfer out there. So when I walked away from that tournament, I understood that if I play well, I can play with anybody. Yeah. Two guys beat me, but their names were Greg Norman and Tom Lehman that day. Right. And so on a golf course that just, I had no business being on, it was a monster. And so for the next couple of years, the mini tours were so much easier because I think that what I realized after that is that there always is a question in your mind. Let's say you're moving up the ranks, moving up the ranks and you're playing pretty well. There's still a question in your mind is my good golf world-class. And so if you can prove that for one day, even just one round, there's a huge weight off your shoulders. You realize the sky is the limit. And my destiny was not to eventually be a tour player, but it gave me a lot of understand a much deeper understanding that, when you do your best, if you've got some skill and some talent, the sky's the limit, you know, and, and that has to be your focus. You can't really just, you know, you can't believe that somebody is just inherently better than you. If you do the work, if you put yourself in the right place, uh, we're capable of, you know, that's what Vision 54 is all about, right? Yeah, Vision 54, yeah. they were trying to reframe what's possible birdie on every hole is you know Annika shot 59 and she said she was five over par she's the only woman to shoot to break 60 in a tour event Mm -hmm. and so there's no is there's no accident that reframing what's possible allowed her to do some amazing things probably it's going to be hard to beat her career when it's all said and done you know just just basically saying that once again it's uh there, there's your, there's a mindset intangible right there, uh, a mindset and a, an attitude 
uh, intangible. And I think that's part of what makes a champion a champion. And uh, some of those seeds that we can put in young people's heads these days, that's one of them. Um, you know, and, and how to be resilient. Uh, you, you mentioned about playing in the U.S. Open there in such a tough examination, the toughest in the world, and then knowing that you could play, coming back with that with that mindset that you can play when you play well, uh-huh. and having it translate into tournament golf after that, and you felt like it was easier. I think there's something to be said for that as well. Um, taking what you learned about yourself and applying it moving forward. Uh-huh. And that's, that's a, that's a, that's always something to put in, in our evolutionary brain to get better. Let me ask you a question, Jesse, would you say that, you know, maybe it's, you wouldn't use these words, but would you, wouldn't you say that great golfers, great athletes, great performers, great artists, it's like 30% magic, isn't it? It, it, there's a there's a there's a realm of performance of creation of creativity that's probably you could call it magic you could call it whatever you want to call it if you're a star wars fan it's the force right it's yeah right it's it's unexplainable it's 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 not kind of constrained by what we think is our normal limits are and and there's so many examples in sports in music you know whether it's the Beatles or whether it's Bob or whether it's um, um, the first four minute mile, right? Sure. You've heard the story. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. F- you know. And if people haven't heard the story, people thought the four minute mile was uh, impossible until it was done. And then I think something like eighteen people did it in the next two years. After uh, I can't remember his name. Four minute mile. I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, this is uh, you know, and I, I'm fascinated with all of that. Whether sure. it's you know, art, music, other sports. I'm just you know, you're. I know you're a huge Giants fan. There was there was a lot of magic happening in the Giants season this year, and Definitely. it's hard to put a finger on it. You know, you got a bunch of old guys, you got a bunch of new guys. How does this thing all come together? There's a synergy, and it's. You just try to cultivate, you keep trying to cultivate all the right things, all the right attitudes, and hopefully that magic comes out. And that's what great golf is all about. Yeah. Next level stuff, right? Uh, oh, well, 100%. I think, I, I think it's a great conversation. I'm really glad that you brought it up. Um, how I would look at it is you, you and I called it the zone growing up. Now it's being more called flow where you're just completely ingratiated in the moment. Right. And, and, and basically you get out of your own way. If people haven't read the book flow, uh, it's an awesome book. I'm going to botch the name, but it's, uh, I think it's Mahai. Cheek sent me high. Yes. Yes. It's, it's a really difficult name to pronounce, but a, the, and a, a huge theme that comes through in his writings is that we're fascinated. We're, we're, we're enjoying it. That's what makes it special. That's what makes time go by. And if you don't have the love for it, that's fine. You know, if you don't have the passion for it, you know, that's not going to be your flow moment or your flow. Uh, that's not where you're going to be at your best. But if, if that's what you love, that's what you need to cultivate. It's complete immersion and, and that 
that element of play is so important. Play being not work, right? Not, not trying too hard, not being overcoached, you know, and having some space for that. But it's a great read if anyone hasn't read that. Yeah, I uh, uh, along the lines of that, um, there's a book called The Mindful Athlete by George Mumford, and um, who who teached or who continues to teach meditation to professional athletes, uh, notably with the Lakers and with the Bulls, and the the whole thing behind that is flow and how to facilitate getting into flow. Right. You know, I'll kind of bring this up and I'll actually give uh, assignments to some of my competitive junior golfers. And I think a lot of times they, uh, they're not sure if the top athletes are really doing this kind of thing. And I guarantee them they are. I know for a fact, a lot of them are, and I suspect that a lot of them are, and they're not telling you about it because why would they, right? If you haven't, (laughs) if you haven't kind of done the work and investigated and sought this stuff out yourself, then you know, maybe it's not your time, but I promise you meditation, visualization, um, uh, all, all these are elements of the, of the great athletes, uh, and, and what they're doing in the evenings and the mornings with their special trainers and things like that. Yeah. Throughout history, they've talked about it. I know Kobe was a big meditator. Um, Michael Jordan, the, the great Bulls teams, the great Lakers teams with Kobe and Shaq, uh, going all the way back to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and um, Muhammad Ali. All of these people practice some level of mindfulness, meditation, or whatever their practice was to get them into the present moment. And I've noticed my best rounds, I was talking about this the other day with, a, with another friend, my best rounds of golf have not not necessarily been sublime ball striking rounds at all. Um, I think a lot of my great rounds I've hit nine or 10 greens. And it's just that I I lose track of score because I'm completely and unconditionally ingratiated in the moment, in each moment. Uh, So the, the attachments of performance go by the wayside and it's kind of difficult to explain. I think people, people that practice meditation or have had these experiences, they can identify. It's hard to put into words, but I can tell you this, that part of a big part of melding, at least mind and body is to have some level of a, of that kind of practice, whatever that is, to get everything synced up. You talk about synergy and you talk about magic and the things that we do to cultivate all of that. And, right. you know, in, in golf, we we hit balls, we work on our short game, we, we try to become more proficient at understanding golf courses and course management, prepping for golf tournaments and, and doing things, looking after what we eat and uh making sure that we get rest and recovery and we're mobile i mean you you can you can the list goes on and on and on on how somebody that could properly prepare themselves to play tournament golf but the thing that makes it all come together is that people call it the it factor it oh Uh got it you know the the first time i saw ricky fowler play golf i said oh my god that kid's got it he's got it it." he was born to play golf 
<laughs> right? But yeah, he's going to win again soon too. Oh, I agree. Yeah, and um, but I think that there's a level of when you get up over a golf shot, you, you let the how and you just go and do, and you allow yourself to get caught up in the moment. And to it's hard to explain. You just surrender everything else, and nothing else matters except in I, that moment. I think there's certain there's certain things that lend it lend themselves to to flow states or to to zone states more easily than golf. You know, golf. I think it's it's more difficult in golf because there's so much time, there's so much interference, there's so there's so many distractions. You have to initiate the action. Uh, you're not really reacting. Um, so the mind is always kind of front and center, right? And that's the obstacle. Yep. You know, where are our thoughts taking us? Are they, are they predominantly fearful? Are they predominantly nervous? Are they predominantly full of self-doubt? I mean, those are the things that make it difficult. Um, you, th- you, you throw a, a quick pass to Curry and he finds a little window of space on the three-point line for about a third of a second. And he can fire that three-pointer without thinking, right? Not to diminish what he's doing. Um, but that's difficult in golf. It's, uh, you know, or even musicians, right? The band's playing uh, and you, you're just going. You don't have a lot of time to think about it. And I think right. that's what makes golf the hardest. Sure. Um, it's golf is what? 98% waiting. Yeah. It's you're, you're walking, you're talking, you're thinking, but it's, there's not very little action in golf. And so managing the in-between is a huge part of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if the typical, whether you're competitive or just a Sunday golfer with your buddies or at a corporate scramble, I get a lot of people trying to get ready for a corporate scramble. <laughs> and the first thing I say to them is like, Hey, have a few beers. Nobody cares. It just, right. as long as you're having fun, you're not going to embarrass yourself. Trust me. Right. You're just not, especially a scramble. Right. right. But these people can't sleep at night before this corporate scramble because they're afraid that they're going to be like naked on stage. Right. But that's where our minds take us, right? Sure. And you know, and these are people that aren't used to that environment, and so it's understandable. It's like, hey, Jesse, you're going to go in front of the, you're going to perform for the San Francisco Symphony as a vocalist tomorrow night. Um, good luck, right? <laughs> that's what it feels like to people, exactly. and it's going to be a full house, you know. Right. These people will tell me about their golf nightmares and stuff. And it's, but it actually creates a great opportunity, though, to, to tackle these challenges that are great challenges to, to, you know, to rise up, be your best self, to trust yourself, to, to have fun, to have a good perspective on things. And that goes, that definitely applies to the competitive golfer, too. Well, golf will certainly test every single part of your being um, and your sanity a lot. Yeah. Who invented golf, right? I mean, it's, if you, if you were, if you saw, I can imagine if you were starting to invent the game of golf and you're like, Hey, we're going to traverse the lands. We're going to hit some kind of small ball through the wind and the rough and the sand and the water. And why would you, why would you make the hole four and a quarter inches wide? I mean, that's just insane, right? Right. right. It's absolute torture. Why, yeah. why wouldn't you make the hole two feet wide? Well, <laughs> it's also what makes the game the, the greatest game. 
in the world, most beautiful game, I think. Because when you can even for a moment achieve some kind of competency out there, you know, these are stories that go to your grave with you. Hey, remember that that four iron I hit at Bandon Dunes that bounced 18 times and and lipped out? That was insane. That was like the highlight of my life. Right. Right. Right? I know. I love those golf stories. You know, people get, you know, people get jazzed about it. Sure. At any level. I think that's, one in. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's the joy of playing. And I think that's a, that's a, a real good point, Rich, that uh, the things, I, things I've noticed, you know, I'm going to speak for myself in my own game and, uh, and moving forward now, um, trying to find more joy and appreciating the game for what it is. And it is a game and it does test every part of, part of our being, you know, magnificently. Uh, but, but taking the joy and hitting the shots, using my imagination and uh, coming at it full circle, having a childlike mentality toward the game and, yes. uh, and, and playing and learning and, and, um, and just, if you can rest by saying, I went out and I tried my best today, whatever the result was, and I had a good time, boy, I'll tell you, that's a pretty good day. It's a, it's a great day. day. Yeah. And 99% of the time you're going to have another chance, right? Yeah. I mean, you and I are going to be 90 something years old and we are going to play our last round of golf somewhere. Yeah. And, but that's the only time we don't have another chance, right? There's always right. another opportunity uh, generally, right? And sure. uh, that's always something you can look forward to. And we have to keep thinking forward. Like I think what haunts us in golf is I think Fred Shoemaker said it really well. And, it, you know, it's, I was reading Fred Shoemaker's book, who's, a, if people don't know Fred, he's a great coach down in um, Carmel, California, that runs a golf, very unique, special golf school down there. And he said that the number one thing that people are afraid of in golf um, is that they won't stop missing. Hmm. And exactly, that was my reaction. If you... Or uh, it's a combination of like, you're not going to stop screwing up and you're also going to, you're also going to look bad in front of other people. And that sounds kind of trivial. Like, well, really, is that what I care about? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that was true. If you knew you were going to, you know, if you knew you're going to miss four putts tomorrow and you missed your first four putts, then you would be like, Hey, I'm going to make everything else. Right. That's what a great shooters mentality is. Basketball shooter. Right. Yeah. He's like, well, that means I'm due. That means I'm due. And that's, that's the championship mindset. Right. And if you're worried about what people think of you or looking bad, well, then you're not in the game at all anyway. Right. You're not really present in the game. Yeah. So those two things, I think he, uh, he talked about a lot. If you miss two putts, a lot of people are afraid they're going to miss every single putt for the rest of the day and that occupies their mind and it affects them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, I wanted to add on, on that. And then the, uh, the antithesis of that is uh, part of the championship mindset is when you're present and in the moment, 
you can use self-talk so much more effectively, Uh you know, especially if you've given yourself a good chance mentally. I, I think that if you're mentally prepared for that shot and you don't execute it, it's, it's a lot easier to let it go. Right. Um, you know, I, I, for me, I've always had a tendency to get pissed off at myself for any sort of erroneous thought that creeps into my psyche, you know, prior to hitting a shot based on past experiences or future anxieties. But I was always willing to let a shot go good or bad. If I was able to, to be in a good mental frame of mind prior to hitting a golf shot. Yeah, we get a lot of chances out there, right? Yeah. 18 holes. Yeah. In your case, maybe 85 shots. Yeah. And and if <laughs> I, you play I, and, and you're gonna <laughs> shoot 84. <laughs> uh you know, we we got we got more chance, we've got lots of chance. We've got to embrace our opportunities, right? Right. And uh I think that attitude not only is gonna make the game more fun for people if they can kind of cultivate that, but uh that's what helps you get better. So if you're, if you're, if you're talking to a young person now, those would be great places to start uh, sort of indoctrinating them and planting the seeds of, of fun, of a, of a fruitful, fun, intense, competitive learning environment. Right. Uh, combined with some, some basic instruction. Yeah. You, you teach your kid how to grip the club and, and, and just the basic swing motion for, for their, for their, whatever their ability is coming into the game. Uh And then you centralize a lot of the, of the teaching behind mindset, short game, putting, Hey, you're to teach them the, the, the noble ability to be resilient because the game, it it really, if you're not resilient, you're going to quit. Yeah. I've got a junior uh, that I have very high hopes for. He's he's uh, he was a very good tennis player. Decided mm, maybe golf is going to be his future. Switched over. Um, he's one of our top juniors in the uh, in California now, and um, he can he contends for lots of junior golf tournaments in his age group. And uh, the one thing he has to get through is I tell him I I can spy on him from a hundred yards, and I can see him hanging his head. Mm-hmm. he'll hit a shot on the range and he'll hang his head. He'll hit a shot on the range. He'll hang his head once in a while. He'll watch that shot to the end. And I know he just striped that one. It was right on the money. Right. Right. And so he's looking for the perfect golf shot. And that's the only thing that's going to make him happy. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to get him to understand is I said, okay, think about your last 10,000 shots. You're not going to remember all of them, but a third of them are going to be poor. A third of them are going to be okay, and a third of them are going to be good. Mm-hmm. That's that's always going to be true. That's true for Tiger Woods. And he looked at me. And he's like, "What? No, he most of his shots are good." I'm like, "I guarantee you." You ask him, he's going to say it's going to be one of those. You know, his standards obviously are different. His bar is higher, mm-hmm. but the mindset about it is what's critical. Sure. If you think that you're failing ninety percent of the time. How are you going to learn? Right. How are you going to get better if you can't build on, hey, that was a decent shot. If I keep hitting those shots, it's those mediocre shots that keep around going, right? right? You were saying some of your best rounds of golf were not stellar ball striking rounds. I've seen that a million times. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and same with my best rounds of golf. There's hardly any one shot that stands out because you can't play a great round of golf by hitting three great golf shots. It's really like 50 pretty good ones, right? Yeah. And a few clutch putts, but it's a whole bunch of mediocre golf shots. And we have to embrace that. That's the nature of the game. Just like when you're hitting, you know, the greatest baseball players in the world. If you bat 330, you're a Hall of Famer, right? Yeah. No doubt. Hands yep. down. Yeah. That's one third, one third of the time they're successful. So what keeps these guys going? It's mindset. Yeah. They're failing two thirds of the time. They're failing to get a hit. They're failing to get on base. Right. And yet they're the best athletes in the world. These are hall of fame athletes. And so you have to find a way to sustain yourself and not punish yourself when you hit one, two grooves thin but it still gets out there in the fairway, right? I think tour pros do that a lot more than people think. Yeah. And you, you were there at that high level. Um, so, you know, I've seen it a bunch where I've seen tour pros. Uh, I, I remember watching Brad Faxon once at Spyglass shoot one under and he topped a tee shot. <laughs> And he had a four putt <laughs> and he tried to go for the green and two on number 11. It's a, it's a par par five dog leg, right. And he laid the sod over a three wood. <laughs> and here's, here's a, everybody knows who Brad Faxon is and uh, one of the best putters in the world. And he never wavered. Yeah. He he was in that space where he just was not attached, and he shot one under on a very difficult golf course. Super difficult. A anybody, anybody who would, let's say, two years ago or a year ago, if I would have done those things, I, I would have berated myself. You might have been that deep into the round, 11th hole, laid the sod over it, not to pick on you, but I'm yeah. saying a lot of people will reach that moment and just spiral down the toilet, right? Doubt oh. themselves, um, berate themselves, and just sort of mentally implode. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're shooting 78 and you're off the tour and nobody's ever heard of you, yeah. so to speak. But yeah, great athlete, you know, pretty much, I guarantee you got, if you're on the PGA tour, you have the ability to accept mistakes. Sure. You know, could, could you could you argue or at least uh, I'm going to make this comment that guys on tour, gals on the LPGA tour, guys on the Champions Tour, the European Tour, all the best players in the world, that they're the greatest acceptors of their mistake. Probably, that's mm -hmm. probably the number one attribute. Mm -hmm. You know, some people say it's the ability to forget. Yeah. You know, the famous story about Nicholas never missed a pun in the 18th hole. Right. And somebody called him out on that mm -hmm. or never missed a putt that mattered on the 18th hole. Right. And somebody called him out on that. And he's like, no, I don't think so. I don't remember yeah. that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's just a mindset, right? That's sure. just, he's choosing to believe that. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, Ben Crenshaw was famous for, if he missed a six footer, he would tap down a spike mark, whether there was one there or not. Because he just says, you know, I'm not going to put that one on my shoulders. Maybe it was a little bumpy here. Tapped down the spike mark, moved on. Yeah. But he didn't blame himself for mistakes. 
and maybe he had to play a little game with himself. Uh, yeah, I think that bounced a little bit off a of spike mark, but it, it, people have a choice, right? You have a choice to believe my putting stroke is flawed or, hey, the greens aren't perfect today. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make my share of putts today, you know, and I think that's what divides great athletes from the also rounds. So that part is tangible. That part can be cultivated. Absolutely. It can mm-hmm. be trained. Self-taught. Yes. Yeah. You can, and, and to give yourself, I think Rotella or it wasn't Rotella, but one of the better sports psychologists in golf, uh, came up with the mental scorecard mm-hmm. and we use that in college. Uh, and you just have to examine your mentality on all these, in all these moments. And no matter what you shot, you have to examine what did you, where was your head? How did you react? Were you present? Did you bounce back? Did you carry that mistake onto the next hole, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then people were able to start to quantify, um, how well they are managing themselves in that 98% of golf is just you, right? It's just mm-hmm. you're between shots. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's kind of the, you know, it's not like we're talking about anything new that hasn't been researched, but I think that has to be applied more in training. The way we prepare, the way we, we manage ourselves on the course between shots after shots Etc. That's that's part of the reason why I, I chose to to start this podcast is to to talk about some of these intangibles that I don't think are necessarily being uh, taught or at least talked about with great regularity in golf yet. Um, uh, you know the the great thing about golf right now is speed, power, speed, power, and that's great. And I think that there's a purpose for that. But it seems that the great masters of golf uh, or sport have have been mental giants, absolute mental Jedi masters, and I, I I just it's curious why, especially in the United States, why we haven't gone down this road of teaching teaching that this is a a huge fundamental, huge. That's a good question. Why aren't we doing it? Well, the yeah. wisdom's right. You and I would agree the wisdom's out there. Yeah. It's not like we're discovering anything or talking about anything new. The wisdom is there. Sure. Uh, whether it's studying the greats of golf or any other performing art, athletics, whatever you want to, whatever realm you want to study, music. Um, but yes, applying it. Uh, it isn't, it isn't being coached enough. It isn't being taught enough. And that's something that I try to do. I, I kind of, when people say, Hey, uh, you know, you teach, you're uh, a swing coach. Well, it's, the swing's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting to me, but not nearly as, as interesting as what we're talking about today. You know, yeah, performance, real special levels of performance. What, what can we learn from? You know, when you study the greats in, in, in all sports, in all performing arts, in all realms of, you know, of, uh, of culture, really. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes, it becomes much broader. And I think that, uh, 
we have a lot of specialists, right? We have people that are great with TrackMan, and they can they can make a living just working off the data and shaping a golf swing through numbers, and and that's great. I can't relate to that very well because I wasn't brought up that way. But at the same time, like kind of we're we're kind of digging into the in between stuff, right? What's right. in between the ears? What's in between the shots? What's uh, what happens before a a big tournament, the night before a big tournament, where, where does our mind go? You know, what are we doing with our energy? How do we process a tough day or a great day? Mm-hmm. You know, are we uh, setting ourselves up for success or are we loading ourselves down with, with uh, a lot of extra stuff that we don't need? So I try to help kind of pare all that stuff down, keep it organized uh, and keep things really simple for people. But, um, that's the direction my coaching is going for sure. I think that's fantastic. I, I'm fascinated by it, Rich. I, I, I hope that, that this will inspire people to take a, a good look at some of these things because, I mean, just, just based on what we said as far as, you know, some of our best rounds have not been these, these great ball striking rounds. And we're mentally, we're clicking, mm-hmm. you know, we're allowing ourselves, or at least we're giving ourselves permission to get into flow. And we're and probably having a good time too. You're, you're having <laughs> a blast. You're having a blast. You know, even, I, bef- I, even before the good golf happens, I think that's, that's something that not always. I mean, I think Cantlay said, Oh, I, I, I don't know how some of these other golfers can turn it on and off. So he talked recently in an interview about, he's got to kind of go into this really quiet box, right. Mm-hmm. For five hours. Sure. And that's, that's actually really rare. Um, and you know, my hat's off to him. It's clearly working for him and he's still exploring how to manage all that. But, mm-hmm. um, generally, you know, I think our mood and our, our attitude, our emotions have so much of an effect on what's going to happen that day. So, but well, based on that, the psychology of happiness is what it is. Yeah, sure. Sure. What, what can somebody do hypothetically to get, uh, uh, his self or herself in that space where they can truly enjoy the, the, that round that day. I, I think that a, a great exercise would be to, to start the day before and imagine that this is going to be the last round of golf you're going to play. Hmm. Use your imagination, okay. whether it's, Hey, you know what? Uh, I'm getting older or my wife can't stand my golf habit anymore. <laughs> or um, uh, whatever the case may be, the world's coming to an end and just use your imagination to imagine what you'd want to make of that round. What, how would you want to, relate to everyone else? How would you want to soak in the scenery? How would you want to appreciate your time? Maybe the only recreation you have all week as a, you know, as a working stiff, right? Sure. You go to these beautiful places. You and I have been blessed to see so many beautiful places, uh, nature and golf course architecture and great company, great friends. What would you want to make of that? Uh, and I think that if people could have, could really think about that, 
first of all, their attachment to the result would probably diminish, right? Yep. They would want to play their best. They would hope that it was their best round of golf ever, but I think they would also go, how would I want to be out there if it was my last day on the golf course? And it's something I think about a lot. I've actually had dreams about that because I've thought about it so much. And it helps me uh, just really appreciate how lucky we are. Like you and I, for us to have a life in golf, well, we could have, there's a million other lives we could have had that don't have this kind of privilege, this kind of opportunity, this kind of beauty, this kind of challenge. It's just, I know it's sustained you and I for decades. So we're so lucky to have this opportunity. And yet at the same time, it's, I think if we can kind of work on uh, imagining that, some of our biggest fears would kind of fall by the wayside. I remember being stressed about making rent. I've got to, I got to break part of to make rent, you know, and, or this is like the last Q, this is my last Q school this is my last shot. And there was a lot of stress about that, but very few people are faced with that. Right. Yeah. It might be looking bad in front of their coworker for, <laughs> for nine holes, or it might right. be, God, I can't get rid of the slice. What's wrong with me? But right. uh, some of those concerns would sort of pale in comparison to like how we would really approach a round of golf. We're so privileged, right? And so that would be a starting point, I think, shifting our mindset. We're so lucky. If we can step onto the first hole, play a round of golf, I, I promise you 95, 99% of the world would love to do that for the next five hours than whatever else they're doing. Amen to that. Absolute amen to that. And I know we're, we're going to wrap it up here pretty soon. Um, is there anything that you would suggest as a form of, I know we've touched on it a little bit. What's something simple that somebody can grab onto as far as, as far as a mindset, just kind of, it's a question and we're thinking out loud together. Something that's yeah, uh- simple. Just, I think, um, well, I, I'll, I'll make an observation or a comment. Mm-hmm. How does, if somebody says, if, if you enjoy, like, I just want to go out and enjoy myself, but I'm so competitive. I'm so, I get so caught up and, and then I worry about what people think about me. You know, what's, what's something that can counter that? That's simple. Uh, what really nobody cares. I think that's no, the biggest they, takeaway is, right. is that other people don't care what Jesse Perryman shoots. No. They're worried about their own game. So yep. if you're concerned about what they think, eh, you're probably you're probably stressed about something that's not even relevant. Yeah. You know, your playing partners are hoping to not look bad in front of you. If you have a great day, you know, you might share a few beers and have, tell a few good stories and, you know, that was pretty cool. And your reputation might be as a golfer might be (laughs) elevated for a moment, but golf is going to bring you back down. Right. So I think, I think understanding that really nobody cares what you shoot, you know, you have to love it. You have to just, if you're, if you're choosing to play the game of golf, you have to embrace success and failure because it's a, it's the toughest game in the world. It's the most beautiful game in the world, but you're never going to just own it. You're never going to own it to where you 
you know, people you mentioned just earlier, like, I just want to be consistent. <laughs> and when people, people bring that to me all the time and I'm like, mm, I might be the most consistent golfer you ever meet, mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel that way to me. I feel like it's wildly inconsistent for me. And so it's just perception, right? Yeah. You're not, if you want to be consistent, uh, do something else, change oil every day or something <laughs> like that. You're right. It, it, you know, you change the oil correctly. You're going to get a good result. 99% of the time, but golf isn't like that. Right. And that's the beauty of the game. And I think that's what attracts people real quick. Like there's a famous experiment we learned in sports psychology, where if you gave a rat a lever and a machine, and every time he pushed that lever, every fifth time he pushes the lever, he gets this pellet of cereal. He actually gets bored of it because he figures out that it's too easy. Yeah, and there's no there's no juice there, right? If the machine is rigged to deliver the prize randomly, the rat gets hooked. And that's us. We're we're the rats. We're hooked by this game that that you know, you start riding high for a couple of weeks. Oh, I've got the secret. Like, you know, I've got the secret. No, well, it'll slap you upside the face <laughs> probably tomorrow. <laughs> so that is what draws us. The, the inherent unpredictability does draw us to the game. And uh, it makes us explore all these things we talked about today. It forces us to examine ourselves and uh, these realms that we don't normally get to explore in our lives. So embrace that or don't do it. You know, it's not for everybody, but I think deep down people, the other thing I, I've noticed after all these years of being around the game is how many people do you know that played golf and just quit golf voluntarily? I don't uh, think you're that. rolling your eye. You're looking up and you can't think of anybody, right? No. Mm -mm. Because the game has us hooked. Very few people quit golf unless their their bodies just can't take it anymore, or who knows. But uh, it's here to stay. If you love golf, you just have to just embrace that it's it's difficult, and it's the ultimate teacher. Yeah, it's always speaking to you. If if we're if we're quiet enough to listen, and and in great moments where our ego is subsided. Or we just have flat gotten our ass beat so much. If uh, <laughs> we're finally open to suggestion, yeah, yeah the, the game's always always talking to us. But it always makes those great us. days even sweeter, or even those great holes, or those great shots, or that long putt that snakes in the hole, or beating Jesse Perriman by one on the last hole. I mean, just moments. We we live for these moments, right? So, you know, enjoy it. We're lucky to be out there. And it just, then it becomes silly to hang our head. You know, it becomes not only counterproductive, but it's like, nah, that's not really how you want to be out there. And, and people deep down realize that for themselves, they don't like themselves when they're negative and always complaining. And, but you know, it's, it's a challenge. It's a tough game. Yep. Well, ultimately, it expresses or exposes our, our deepest, most innermost self. And um, if we're aware of that, and we can we can set aside our ego and look objectively, it'll tell us what we need to do, um, yeah. how to get better. And I think um, uh, 
one of the things that I'm finding out in closing quickly, but I do want to leave people with this thought and feel free to expand on it, that a lot of this game, a good majority of it, once you have a, a basic uh, swing motion that's, that's functional, uh, a lot of it's mindset, a lot of it's intangibles, a lot of it's resilience, a lot of it's just being in the moment. Right. And, and uh, that's really the way to, to, to have everything come together and accepting, accepting good shots and accepting bad shots is a part of the mentality that can be cultivated. Um, I, I wish I could swing like Adam Scott, um, but, but I can't, I can't physically. And that's just not in my swing DNA, but I can certainly adopt his mindset. Yep. You know, that, that part of it's there and available for all of us. Yeah. But um, anything else to add on that? Uh, not anything that wouldn't start a whole new conversation. So we'll save that for later. We're going to do that another time. You got it, buddy. All right. Well, Rich, hey, always, my friend, thank you. And thank you for coming on. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate it.